All right. So we were just getting started on talking about the four uh, ways of progress. And that, uh, are you there? I think your screen, yep. screen is frozen. Okay. okay. Am I here All now? Right. You see me? Yes, I can hear you. Okay. So one is uh, the, the fast easy. The other one is the hard easy. And then there is the slow and hard path. And then there is the slow and easy path. Um, the slow hard path is the path that most Westerners are on. And that uh, in the teachings of the Buddha, it's recommended many times. One place is in the Dhammapada. Another one is in uh, Sutta number 22. Another place is in Sutta number 38. And many places where it's stated that the teachings of the Buddha are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. All right. But most of the students who are practicing, it's hard in the beginning and maybe hard in the middle and it only gets good at the end. But that's not the way that uh, Anapanasati can be practiced. It can be practiced good in the beginning. And that's when we that's what leads into the slow, easy path of Anapanasati. Um, can you turn your camera off and back on because your uh, video is frozen? There you go. Better now? Uh-huh. Okay, so <coughs> the, the thing that makes the distinction between the slow and easy and the slow and hard is when do we start to develop right attitude? that if we practice and practice and practice sati, mindfulness, practice and practice investigation, practice and practice taking effort, but we're not taking necessarily the right effort that leads to um, the right attitude, then the path will be very, very slow. And that it can be very hard and, and the way that it can be hard is that let's, let's do this way with the difference in, in uh, distinction between two woeful states. One is called disgust, and the other one would be called despair. Now, what we mean by disgust, which is actually the right way of, of doing it, is when we see the dukkha in the world, and then we become disgusted with the way that we have been raised. <clears throat> and then the further dis uh, being disgusted is when we recognize how much of that disgusting world that we have been, you know, we've been lied to, we've been cheated, we have been uh, taken out of our nurturing environment into a critical environment. And so we've become critical of that critical world and we become disgusted with it until we realize that wait a minute it's the fact that i bought that critical world that makes it disgusting that what i'm really disgusted with is not the world it's what i've made of it mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And that's when we bring in the decision. I've got to make some changes here. This is where Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa talks about there's a choice to be made. Now, if we're practicing right attitude right from the very beginning, then we are going in the right direction. But if we don't have right attitude, then that disgust mixes with doubt. And that the first primary doubt is, am, uh, who's going to help me get this done? And so we rely upon gurus, we rely upon teachers and, and sociologists and medical doctors and all kinds of people, including priests and gods. And we're all wind up looking for a mommy to change our <laughs> diaper because we have pooped in our diaper, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And when we come to the conclusion that mommy's not going to change our diaper, that we're an adult now and we're pooping in our own diaper and it's time for us to clean up our own diaper. When we recognize that nobody's going to help me clean up my diaper, that's when the dark night of the soul sets in is the realization just um, an example of that would be Mother Teresa because it's well documented in her um, memoirs that for many many years well longer than 20 years she was in the dark night of the soul because for so many years before that she had prayed to Jesus she had prayed to God God do this and do that and give me this and give me that and I want this and I want that and God never delivered. Not only did he not deliver, he never sent a non-delivery notice. (laughs) And she became disgusted with the fact that God was not talking to her. I mean, God, look at all the books and and whatnot, and God's been talking to all kinds of people all the time. Why won't God talk to uh, Teresa? And so she gets disgusted. Well, in that in that lineage, in that way of looking at it, that if you can't get God to help you, guess what? You're screwed. Because of original sin, you know, mm-hmm. it's yeah, you, you were born in original sin. But you who do you think in uh, Romans five, it states, who do you think you are? That you're good. Only God is good. Right. That's the Mm -hmm. kind of mentality. So you've got to have Jesus as your savior. And then the dark night of the soul comes is is when they recognize, guess what? Jesus didn't do his job. He didn't save me. (laughs) Mm. Yeah. And so and so this this is then the uh, the issue of the dark night of the soul. Now, we can have it phrased in different ways, Um, but. The solution to that is to practice correctly from the beginning in the sense that, wait a minute, it's not going to be a God or a Jesus or a mommy or a preacher or a guru or a meditation technique is going to do it for me. That I've got to put in the right effort myself and I've got to do it with the attitude that I can do this. And so mm-hmm. you can see that there's levels of doubt in there. The first level of doubt is who can I get to, to fix me? The answer is nobody. Nobody's going to do it. 
And this is the difficulty with most meditation practices, because all those guys that are writing these books and saying all of those techniques are wrong and bad, only my technique is good, is he setting himself in that position of being the savior. Mm -hmm. And if you do it my way, then you'll be okay. So now um, that whole concept of um, getting help from the outside is reinforced by these books. Many books will say in the beginning, if you only follow what I've got in this book, you'll be great. And so they promise it, okay? Mm -hmm. And really what it's all about, it's about changing our attitude and that attitude doesn't change easily because we have been in the attitude of a victim or a loser or been in the position of we need help or only a victim needs help if you've got two dogs out there fighting and one of them's on top of the other growling and snarling and the other one is whimping guess which dog needs help (laughs) yeah Uh exactly so when we recognize it like that that Mm -hmm. oh wait a minute i do not have to be in the position of being a victim that i have been practicing anapanasati and getting benefit from it and and being able to bring up these good feelings uh maybe not right from the actual very beginning though if people were practicing correctly they would so that then that that doubt about am I up to this task because I can't get anybody else to help me, I've got to do it myself. And once I start practicing correctly, then I begin to get that benefit for myself. Mm-hmm. And so then the first step on the noble path may in fact be very easy for the student and it may come very quickly in his new found meditation practice when he comes to the conclusion that he knows what hindrances are and he knows that he can remove them from his mind anytime yeah that he can remember we can remove them and so in fact in the sutta number 48 in the kambasani sutra it states that the first knowledge is the knowledge that no matter how obstructed the mind is with hindrances, that I can throw those things out. That is um, confidence. The Pali Mm. word is shraddha. The word uh, shraddha or sada is often translated as faith. But then we have the problem of, no, it's not faith because many, many people have faith in Christianity and they get nowhere except maybe caught in the Capitol building trying to take over the place. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In other words, that faith, there's no, there's no <clears throat> actual evidence. Even when you look at the priesthood, you still don't find any evidence. What do you find there is pedophilia, preachers with his fingers in the till, trying to get his own jet plane, and it always becomes ordinary dhamma in the sense of it's got money in it. And it's got fame. It's all about power. Is all about power and fame and money and all of that kind of stuff because of the delusion 
that we have, that if I have power and fame, then I will feel secure. Yeah. To where the feeling of security should be developed directly. Mm-hmm. You can feel uh, safe and secure and comfortable and happy, and nobody knows you at all. You don't have to have fame. You don't have to have the power. But in fact, people who have fame and power wind up generally being pretty miserable. Yeah. Yeah. Very I mean, look at Donald Trump. Does I he look happy know. right now? <laughs> <laughs> Even just down to the, my, my, the executives in my company. You know, uh, I'll talk to them in conversation and they'll say, you know, I need to do whatever you're doing or whatever. They, they want, they don't, but they don't want to give up what they need to give up. They, they, they don't want to do that, you know. Well, that's an interesting thing about the Dhamma is, is that instead of, and, and most people practice it this way, because of the idea that we have that's so built deep into our culture is actually the law of karma. Even though this is normally referred to as a Hindu thing, Christianity and Islam are firmly established in this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is sin, right? Mm-hmm. And that what they have the idea is, is that, oh, in order to get the reward, I have to give up all of this. I have to stop doing the bad and stop re- uh, uh, receiving the rewards of the bad before I can do the good and then get the rewards of the good. Mm-hmm. But the answer to that is no, if we're practicing Anapanasati correctly so that we get the benefits of it in the sense of a sense of well-being, the sense of um, um, well-being, let's say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That if we have a sense of well-being, that if we have developed that, if we have the confidence that I can handle anything, I can handle this moment, I can handle the next moment, everything is going to be okay. I've survived to this far. I will continue to survive. And even if I don't survive, I can handle the transition from survival to non-survival quite well, thank you. In other (laughs) words, I can die um, nobly. Mm -hmm. I can handle that too. I can handle anything, even my own death. When we come to that conclusion, that's when, let us say for the example of the executive, once Mm -hmm. he realizes that he's already really okay. Yeah. Then he's able to see that, well, wait a minute, then I can do without all of that other stuff. That uh, we now can practice correctly the four requisites, but we can't practice the four requisites when we think that all of that big stuff that I wanted was going to make me happy. That's back to that first doubt that we were talking about. Where am I going to get my happiness? Am I going to get my happiness by having a a Jaguar and uh, um, sign on my uh, big office door saying that I'm the boss? Do we get our happiness from that kind of thing? Go ahead. The value, the value attachment, the value that they that they place. um, It's hard. It's hard to convince someone like that. 
who's so steeped in the culture of valuing these external objects mm-hmm. that that is a that, it's 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 a silly childish mind state it's not it's it's not it's um and it's painful you know it's it's hard to convince them to come out of that that value system well you can't convince them and that's what i'm saying we don't even need to try to convince them yeah. that they in fact once they recognize that they've got what they were looking for because they've built it on the inside then they can stop looking for what they couldn't find on the outside on the outside and they stop looking for it there and start it relishing the fact that they found it on the inside. Mm-hmm. Okay. In other words, <clears throat> how to say it? Oh, let's think of it like this. Let us say that you're trying on a new set of clothes. One way of doing it is by taking all of the old clothes off and becoming naked. I've been putting all the new clothes on. And Mm -hmm. that's terrifying, that point of time of being naked. (laughs) And people are absolutely terrified of that. That that guy's not about to give up his Jaguar and his uh, sign on the wall and his big office and all of that and become naked again because the promise is, is that the new clothes are not that much better than the old clothes anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So a new way of doing it <clears throat> would be to start putting on new clothes. And as we do, we can recognize, wait a minute, I need to uh, take that. I, I would feel more comfortable now with this new shirt that I've got if I would take a moment and take the old shirt off and then put the new shirt back on. And so because we already know how that new shirt works, we all know how it um uh, it does the job and all of that. Now I can let go of the old. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so that's a major process that yeah. um, that we have in Western Buddhism because it's built into all the religions. In other words, you have to start doing good for a long time before you get the benefit of your good behavior. Yeah, I think, yeah, and that's that's the major difference between this teaching and a lot of other teachings in which this teaching, we go straight into, well, let, let's do it, let's go into doing the practice, whereas uh, uh, most other teachings start with, your whole mindset is wrong, and mm-hmm. you need to completely rethink life altogether, rather than, you know, in, in 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 this method, it's you know it's boiling the lobster, you know slowly, you know start out in cold in some nice water and then just heat it up ever so slightly. Yes, that's mm. that's a that's a way of looking at it. Uh, the Buddha used the analogy of a log in the bog can't be set on fire; it has to be uh, pulled out of the bog. But even when it's pulled out of the bog, it still needs time for the gravity to pull the water down through the log as well as the sunshine on top of the log to get the top of the log dry enough to set it on fire. Okay, so um, the way that we're... um, 
in that in that regard, we can we can do that seclusion thing or pulling the log out of the bog from time to time, temporarily, like going to a retreat or whatnot like that. that we don't have to give up the whole world. I have a lot of students, in fact, who are looking for a monastery to go to immediately <laughs> mm -hmm. rather rather than recognizing the benefits of going to that monastery or are available to you right here right now if you practice correctly and yeah. a lot of people go to the wat go to the temple go to the uh, uh, forest retreat and are not practicing there correctly and they're so they're just as miserable in the wat or in the forest as they were in the executive suite it's like you said they're they're contemplating taking off their clothes and they're as quick as they can they're thinking where's another set of clothes i can put on real quick you know, mm -hmm. let me let me get some rites and rituals and and some things I can attach to because I'm I'm becoming unattached to these other. It's mm -hmm. like the addict who who goes to another addiction. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. So. You're right. So this is the problem with these other practices is, is that they're missing something right from the very beginning. And so uh, an example of that is, is that you have the intention of baking a cake. Well, all cakes have a certain number of ingredients to them. Almost always a cake will have egg. Almost always a cake will have milk and butter or perhaps oil if it's a, a commercial cake. They don't put butter in them. They put butter substitutes and whatnot. But always... A cake has flour and always a cake has sugar. So if you are missing ingredients, especially a key ingredient like flour or sugar, then whatever you make is not going to be cake. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. And that uh, the Buddha talks about this in the sense of gathering together the factors, the word samati actually is what that word means. Most of the people in Western Buddhism think that it means concentration. Where samadhi actually means gathering together the factors, just like you would get all the ingredients of a cake together before you make a cake. You get your ingredients together, all the ingredients. Right. Okay. And that... Um, Many people then live with whatever they're made out of the ingredients that they have. But if they don't have the flour and the sugar, then they are eating something that is not really cake. Mm -hmm. And they're dissatisfied with it. <laughs> and so they're not willing to give up their old diet at all. Yeah. All right, but when you yeah. have all of the ingredients, when you have um, samati, that means that you have all of the mental ingredients that you need mm -hmm. to make the cake. Okay, mm -hmm. and so this is what uh, is important to recognize that um, anapanasati <clears throat> is nothing but a detailed description of how to get into first jhana. And yeah. that the jhana factors are there. What are the jhana factors? Number one, 
John factor is freedom from the hindrances. In other words, the mind is already in a wholesome state. We intend to bring it into a wholesome state. That's one's right effort. Once we keep bringing that mind into the wholesome state over and over and over again, we gain confidence that we can do it over and over and over again. That confidence then is like the confidence of a winner. The confidence not of a loser, because the loser has the mentality of, oh, this is hard. And I hear the students use the word hard and try a lot, which is the wrong attitude. The right attitude is, never mind, start again. Mm -hmm. The right yeah. attitude is, I can do this, I can handle this one. And so when yeah. we practice, practice that way, that means that we're gathering that joy and that sukha. Sukha and pity are the Pali words, and the word pity, I think, is really, really misunderstood a lot. But when we have the pity and the sukha together, what we mean by that sukha basically is a continuum. And the continuum all has the, the qualities of safety, security, confidence, uh, um, contentment. Those are all part of um, sukha. And the word sukha actually is direct opposite of dukkha. In other words, if you're feeling comfortable, secure, uh, content, uh, safe, secure, then that's what we mean by that's the opposite of dukkha. Because what is dukkha? Dukkha is being unsafe, unsecure, unsatisfied, uncontent, right? Mm -hmm. And so sukha means to, to practice getting into the state of being comfortable and content. And then when we do that over and over again, then that attitude comes in, I can do this, and that's when the pity arises. And the pity is the same thing as the sukha with an additional ingredient of energy built into it in the sense of yee-haw. Okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, uh, an example would be in, in uh, the big um, professional football games that when the guy makes a touchdown, what does he do immediately after that? Immediately after he does the touchdown. Someone does a dance, the ball. throws, spikes he the ball. He does a dance. He dances, right. And one of the things he does with the dance is the arms are in the air. Okay. This is it. Mm -hmm. you, you, you know what I'm talking about. Okay, oh, yeah. I'm the championship. Mm -hmm. I'm the champion here. I did it. I did it. Okay. We need to develop that attitude in our meditation practice that, hey, I could do this. And if we practice that right from the beginning, then when we get into that disgust of the world, we can say, hey, I can handle being disgusted with the world. Yeah, I can throw it out. I think because, because when you're in those moments of, if say, the touchdown, you know, you, 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 it's a, it's a fantastic moment in retrospect, but you're not even, you couldn't even say you're really having the experience. It's purely happening. 
You know, mm-hmm. it's you can't you can't have that experience. That experience is happening, and you can think back on it. Mm-hmm. But when it happened, it was just happening. <laughs> it was just happening, right? Exactly. We set the stage. All right. An example of that would be that the the pistol has been bought, the pistol has been cleaned, the pistol has been loaded, the pistol has been caught, and now all we need to do is pull that trigger, and now a whole sequence of events is set off that, um, let us say, in that process, the bullet flies out of the chamber, but from the time of, of um, that, from the beginning until that bullet actually flying, is a long, complex process. Mm-hmm. The bullet has to be manufactured. It's got to have the jacket and the primer and the uh, uh, the grains of uh, uh, gunpowder or uh, modern smokeless powder, plus the uh, uh, the ball that has to be completely uh, fitting into the barrel, exactly correct. But then you can see that when the trigger is pulled, that throws a spring which moves the hammer which hits the firing pin and the firing pin then hits the uh the the firing cap that causes a little bit of a fire which then sets the um uh, the smokeless powder off and then that gas causes the bullet to go out of the chamber look at all these little causes and effects that are in there one after another after another after another after another and this is what you're talking about the experience that once we set off that chain of events, pity will naturally be there, just like the guy who did all of that work to get that touchdown. And once he recognizes he's made that touchdown, that he is successful, that's when that elation comes. Mm-hmm. So being elated, that's the pity of the yeehaw, I can do this. Wow, this is so nice is the other way of saying it hmm. okay yeah i've done it yeehaw and so this is actually part of the package of things that we have to get together in order to um let us say be in that state is the state of success now how many years does somebody have to practice a particular method let's say of noting and then going through the dark night of the soul before they finally recognize, hey, dark nights of the soul are nothing. I can handle those too. How many years? How many years <laughs> does it take of going through dark nights of the soul before we recognize, hey, dark nights of the soul are nothing. I can handle that too. That's just another obstruction. Yeah. You can throw anything out whenever you want to, you know. Mm hmm. Exactly. And that when we have that confidence, that shraddha, when we have that right attitude that I can do this, then the dark night of the soul is not so dark. Now, there's another way of looking at it, and that is, is that there is a kind of a dark night of the soul upon the student recognizing they've got no soul. I mean, how how dark can a can a night get for a soul when that soul recognizes that he doesn't even exist? <laughs> no That's a paradox. <laughs> <laughs> There's no soul to recognize the, the uh, lack of soul. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so, in in that in that realm, 
of um, it, it comes from the position, and the Buddha talks about it a lot in the sense of I had it, and now I've lost it. Poor me. I have lost something that I used to think and that I had. And so recognizing that I don't have any soul when I have been counting on one going to heaven all of these years, that's why these delusions are really hard for people to give up is because they don't want to see that in fact there's there's no soul there. Mm-hmm. But we can talk about it in the dark night because of the despair. But that despair is coming from the doubt of who am I going to get to fix me because I can't fix myself. Now that we're working with this, we can recognize, hey, I can fix myself. I don't need any help. I've got this wired. Yeah. I can handle this. And I don't need any help. I think that the the maturity aspect of the path, for me, it's accelerated maturity. Like, that's kind of what the path is. This is an accelerated maturity. And uh, nobody ever brings that up. Rarely do you see anything about developing confidence when you're talking about waking up. I think so much so that um, that I, I don't know if uh, Ken Wilbur, have you heard of Ken Wilbur? I, I've uh, heard the name. I don't know too much about it. He him. was really big in the early 2000s, and he developed this thing called integral theory, which is basically based on self-development and integrating your previous learning into your new learning but he he wrote a book about waking up growing up and showing up or something like that mm-hmm. that he was afraid that he he thought people needed to learn to grow up before they woke up right or 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 something like that but i think taught properly it, it's it's handled all in in the buddhist teaching it's all encompassed it's a package really. Right. It's a a package. We have to get the ingredients together and which one we get first is not uh, necessarily the important point, but rather that we do have them all. And so you're right. Uh, Growing up is really what this is all about. It's becoming high quality, high class human being as opposed to uh, behaving with each other like we did when we were kids. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, yeah. when we're really, really little kids, we play with everyone. It is okay. I mean, black, brown, dark, fat, big, little, three-year-olds, four-year-olds don't make those kind of decisions and distinctions. And so every four-year-old is good for another four-year-old. By the time they're six, however, things are beginning to change. We're beginning to become critical. Mm-hmm. And that, and so uh, criticism in the child is what we grow up as. So that we behave uh, childishly in our criticism. I'm better than he is. Our, my dama is better than his, et cetera, like that. And we, and we are actually in our culture trained in competition. 
Competition is everywhere within the educational system. That's what sports are all about. I don't know of any sports that are non-competitive. Yeah. The, the, the Olympics is basically the, um, uh, the model uh, that every school has. But you can see how the Olympics, that the guy who wins gets the gold medal and he gets higher than everybody else and his <laughs> ribbon is bigger. And then second and third place and then um, bronze and silver and all of that. And if you don't get the bronze, then you got nothing, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. And the same thing is about getting into university. And the same thing is in the second grade of who got an A and who got a B in mathematics and all of that. So yeah. all of that competition is built in. And that's also the idea of uh, being up to scratch. Mm -hmm. And so if we develop that quality of completely growing up, what that means is, is that we're putting away that childish competition and we begin to, uh, let us say it like this, we become the mommy, the original mommy that is nurturing to every kid. Mm -hmm. That a good mommy is going to be nurturing to every kid, no matter how bad the kids are to each other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. And so yeah. this is the real growing up that we need to do is the growing up beyond the competition. So that we recognize right. that, hey, we human beings have, have built quite a mess for ourselves here <laughs> called human society. <laughs> and that we can deal with each other better than the way that we've been doing it. That we don't have to be constantly in, in a battle or in a fight. But guess what? The one, um, Fritz Perls, by the way, uh, psychologist back in the 1970s, he was at Esalen, um, he was the one who had the chair, but he was also the one who came up with the concept of top dog, underdog. Or there are winners and there are losers. Um, and the idea then is, is that the, the, the bottom dog, the one who is the loser, the one who is upside down on his back trying to defend himself, is basically the, opinion, uh, the position that we all have that really... If we are strong and tough, then we don't go around trying to put other people down and put them in the victim's position. That if you're truly a winner, we see everybody as a winner. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so the tough yeah. dog that is on top is only the tough dog because he doesn't and is on top because he doesn't want to be on the bottom. And that's all they can see. So these uh, executives say, well, if I didn't have this big office with my big name on the sign and the big car out in the parking lot, then woe is me. Who would I be? In other words, if I'm not the winner here, then I'm going to be the loser. Yeah. Yep. And, and so that's not a position of strength. It's actually a position of a charlatan. And who is the charlatan? The loser who is pretending to be the winner. Mm -hmm. But the real winner, the real strength, doesn't have to show off his strength. And it's not Those, dependent. 
Right. It's not dependent because I've got it on the inside. I don't need to um, compete with, let us say in this regard, other meditation teachers that I can let those meditation teachers teach what they want. And there still can be good friends. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We don't have to say because I disagree with what you're saying, you're a bad person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because in that regard, we're all bad. <laughs> yeah, and in regards to teaching, uh, I mean, it, it goes it goes back to, to to karma too. I mean, you can't you can't control the outcome of what's gonna what's gonna happen with the student. You know, you're not you're not in control of what what the outcome is of your teaching or whether even if your even if your teaching is successful and the student learns what you wanted them to learn, whether that's going to lead to anything good. You know, it could lead to someone just giving up and being a lazy bum for the rest. Who knows? But 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 that's your judgment call on what that uh, being attached to outcomes. Right, being attached to outcome. But in fact, that's not what we're doing here. What we're doing here is just having a, a, a delightful conversation about the Dhamma. Mm. And if there's anything that's to be transmitted, it's not the actual words that I'm saying, but it's my attitude about it. Mm-hmm. That that's actually what's being transmitted is um, the students can see that I'm not dry and door and uh, talking about something uh, that I too hope to get someday. Mm-hmm. But rather, I'm talking about this is the way things are right now. You too can have a ball. <laughs> you too mm-hmm. can enjoy. And so um, most of the students, when they when they call and talk on on Skype here, they really like it, which is the whole point. Yeah. Is to get people into the state of, of laughing and joking and uh, giving them uh, partially the attitude uh, that's transmitted is if I have that winner's attitude, if I have the attitude of joy and security, then <clears throat> that can be transmitted to the student. If <clears throat> Yeah, looking back, it's kind of clear that I that the techniques and the pointers were helpful, but the what what you're saying, the transmission of the of the uh, attitude, um, is the the what 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 you're after or what keeps you. Um, it's like a north north star. You know what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. it's the thing that you I can do see exactly. clearly. Yeah. That in all of the times that I had with all of the various teachers, and mostly in India, it was only when I got to watch Soan Mok, and I got it right from the very beginning with Achan Po, that I knew that Achan Po really cared about me, that I felt part of the family. I felt accepted. 
not just another kid coming to the white, but rather that, um, uh, how to say it? It was the attitude that he had. But it wasn't just him. It was that attitude that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa had. Of come right in, sit right down. Let's have a ball together. Mm-hmm. Let's transmit the Dhamma in, in that way. Is that it's, uh, it's joyful. It's Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa constantly was chuckling. When I talked to him, he was just chuckling nonstop. Yeah. And so that attitude that we're talking about right from the get go is what keeps us from going into these dark nights of the soul, because the dark night of the soul is a place of despair. How can I possibly get out of this place that we're in? To where when we have the right attitude, we can say, hey, that bun- that's a bunch of crap out there. But. That doesn't mean that I'm completely covered in crap. And so it's, we can see that, that there is that disgusting quality, but I do not have to succumb to that disgust so that I go into a state of despair. And I'm sure that's something that your father or your parents never really communicated to you. Or... or, or communicated in that way it it, it, maybe there was a dependency i know in my relationship with my parents there's a dependency on outcome Mm -hmm. with my mom right but but um there's a felt dependency of 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 outcome that the that the unconditional love takes uh, a developed mind to actually um, to have it takes a developed mind to actually sincerely have unconditional love because otherwise for for most people they're wrapped up in the egoic um, what am I going to get how am I getting screwed um, how do I, how am I how do I stack up in this relationship right exactly and you can also call that uh, the competition, the competitive, or the other word that I'm using is the word critical. In other words, we do not have unconditional love. We have conditional love, and the conditions on that love are uh, this set of rules that we have. Do you match up against this set of rules or these conditions that we have set? And that's the hard part a lot of people don't understand about that second fetter. Second fetter means that it's right up front. We got to deal with it very soon. And that second fetter of, uh, in the Pali, it's called Sila Basa Paramasa. Sila Bata Paramasa means that we attach to these rites, rules, rituals, these um, conditions. We put that conditioning in that this is good and this is bad. A messy room is bad and a clean room is good. Therefore, I will love you when you clean your room. And we put everything as a condition. Mm -hmm. But nurturing 
means that like for uh, and the good example is a, a new mom with a new infant that when that infant does its first poopy after a couple of days, everybody in the house is very happy that he's doing a poopy, <laughs> right? That's going to change. Yeah. That's going to change. And we're going to start, <laughs> he is not going to be able to poop in his new diaper unconditionally. Now he's going to have conditions. He's going to have to go do it on his potty. He's going to have to do it in the toilet, et cetera, like that. And so this is the idea <coughs> that when we are a very, very baby, young infant, that the love is unconditional. And we long for that nurturing, but we wind up living in a critical world. Mommy becomes critical after we gain three, four years. Yeah, I, I, um, since the last time I talked to you, I've probably sat one time, but it was a pretty good one because I, just happened upon my first memory, which was standing at the screen door while my parents were fighting and my dad slamming the door on me and getting in the car and squealing tires off, mm -hmm. you know, and I, and, um, you know, never really in my life again. Um, but the connection happened the i was able to see the 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 emptiness that that relationship left which was something i could never people kept telling me you know i that i that i i counselors in school would say you know um would, would try to counsel me on you know, um, being a parent or being, you know, having a single mom. And, and I, I remember going to counselors, but it was not anything that I could ever connect with because it was just an absence. You see what mm -hmm. it was? I didn't know what I was missing at all. But now that I have kids, I was able to see myself in that moment just as unconditionally as I see my kids now. Mm -hmm. And the, the forgiveness that you, or, or the, the unconditional love that, that you have to have for yourself is, you know, it's, it's a powerful thing to see yourself as, as a child mm -hmm. immediately, you know, and um yeah not not that it, it not that that was just that was just and 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 it was a very emotional thing but i think that self forgiveness is is one of those knots that that um that creates it creates your conditioning, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's a knot that, that is very difficult to untie because it's very hard to, to forgive yourself because you are so self-critical. Exactly. So now here's something that we can look at for a moment. And that is that 
issue of forgiveness means that you have already been critical mm -hmm. and that you have judged that part of yourself or the other person as being bad and now we need to forgive them for being bad because they were judged they were you know criticized what we're looking for here is to change that sequence so that we don't need forgiveness because we didn't do the judgment in the first place that you were already naturally okay yeah. Yeah. and we can keep coming back to that point and so in that regard um looking at it from the fact that the nurturing is done by the mommy by the parent and it's the child who is the benefit beneficiary of that nourishment that these are the roles that we have to take on inside of our own interior world is for the parent inside to stop judging and being a critical parent and start being a nurturing parent so that the child inside feels secure and safe, not judged. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is why yeah. we work on directly of changing the unwholesome thoughts are critical thoughts. They're thoughts of work that needs to be done or are things that have to uh, be accomplished. Uh, future jobs to do. Mm -hmm. And so. Uh, and and while that's that's a compelling story, what, what I'm telling you, it it's much simpler than that. I mean, it's it's as simple as throwing it out and realizing that you are that you can be an adult and you never even needed the dad to be uh, mature because you don't need to copy someone that's not being mature. That's Being exactly mature. right. Uh-huh. Mm. That's exactly right. In fact, you could go so far as to say is the Sila Bhatta Paramasa is nothing but the child copying the daddy. That's exactly right. That's the that's the Sankara or the the learned behavior. The the way that we learn how to feel, we got those feelings from daddy. Daddy taught us how to feel. Mommy taught us how to feel. Guess what? Mommy and daddy didn't feel good, <laughs> not all the time. <laughs> and so they may have not been the best model to learn how to feel. <clears throat> and so coming into that position of uh, non-critical is the same way the Buddha talks about it as unwholesome thought. The unwholesome thought is, I like this, I don't like that, I want this, I want to get rid of that, etc. Thoughts of actually of uh, of trying to fix something, and in the process of fixing things, we damage it often. A child will, uh, whenever a child takes a, uh, takes a clock, what do we do with it? We take it apart. Do we ever get that clock back together? Many times, no. <laughs> no, we don't get it back together again. And so that's the whole idea of critical means that we keep taking things apart. We keep inspecting it. We keep looking for this or that and the other thing. But nurturing is a completely different way of looking at it. Nurturing means that it's okay like it is. I don't have to take it apart to fix it. It's all right like it is. Okay. 
And so we take on the nurturing role of a nurturing mommy and nurture our deeper inside self by having wholesome thoughts. The wholesome thoughts are nurturing thoughts. <laughs> thoughts of, ah, this is nice. Thoughts of, well, what a nice day this is. Oh, what a wonderful world. If we're using um, Satchmo's language. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and so this mm -hmm. nurturing, this joyful way is something that needs to be practiced over and over and over again. Yeah. So that we can have that joy, that nurturing quality, when we get into being really disgusted with our behavior. Yeah. And we become really disgusted with how I used to do things. Mm -hmm. But we could do that with instead of, oh, poor me, oh, that's disgusting, and, I'm, and I don't know how to get out of it, and I'm full of despair. That's the dark night of the soul. But instead, when we come across the disgusting, we say, yuck. I'm glad I don't have to deal with that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I and saw so some of that. that nurturing. I saw some of that today and it, and usually I see people and the way they'll react to case. And cause I, you know, I do try to be, I, I mean, I don't even try it. I, I, I really have a hard time being upset with him doing anything. And I feel the expectation from others to be upset. Mm -hmm. And typically I don't engage with it. When he's at daycare, I don't want him to get kicked out of daycare. We we have to maintain daycare. So I I try to be skillful in playing in, in playing up whoever's attitude I'm dealing with. So if he's doing something and it's annoying someone, I'll hurry him along. But I could tell one of his Teacher, she was a little frustrated at first, and he came through and he saw something on a table that he liked, and he started playing with it. And um, I was worried she was going to get frustrated, and I saw she was frustrated. But then I, I, I saw her. She's an older lady, actively recognized that she was getting grousy, and she turned it around. She said, "You know what? You can just have that," and she just let him have it, and he walked out the door. You know, and it, and, it, and um, I How see nurturing of her. Wow, that was great yeah. that she was able to change. Yeah, she woke up. That's excellent. <laughs> I uh, actually had exactly the opposite happen one time when I was a really, really little kid, and um, I think that it was like parent-teacher meeting or something like that, and the parents came to the room, and so all the kids that. Uh, um, that didn't have any home place to stay had to come to the school and there was a great big daycare center there that one mm. time and i remember seeing this really funny old bag <laughs> and i go and i open this funny old bag and this lady screeches at me and the next thing i know the next day i'm in the principal's office for for being accused of being a thief <laughs> my mom oh, and dad my called her to the school and all that kind of stuff and I, I wasn't trying to steal anything I just found a really interesting old bag in the in the daycare I didn't know that that was this lady's handbag <laughs> I, I, I distinctly remember being in daycare and being force-fed things I don't like by this older lady 
in an angry way. She would force it in my mouth, you know, force food in my mouth. And there were certain foods I had a hang up about, you know, well into my 20s even because just of these memories of, of her, you know, forcing, you know, food on me. It, it... <clears throat> yeah. Yes, exactly. And that you can remember, but you probably don't actually remember all of the other things that happened where adults were being angry and, and critical of a child. And that's yeah. where the children learn that criticism is from the critical adults. And so what yeah. we need in daycare is not critical old ladies. The nuns <laughs> of, uh, I mean, <laughs> you know, Pink Boyd's song. <laughs> yeah eat your meat you can't have any pudding if you don't but eat because meat. because we have lived in a critical society with full of criticism in the educational system now moment by moment we are critical of ourselves we've got work to do you can't be happy until you get this done and all of that kind of mentality but the answer is is that all you have to do is clean out the mind and the, and the, any job that you needed to be done that you were thinking about in the mind, once you pull that out of the mind, there's nothing to do now. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like intentionally taking your to-do list and erasing every item on it. <laughs> and then you, there's nothing to do because you've got a to-do list is empty. And how do you use it empty? Because I didn't scratch off saying I've got that done and I've got this done. Rather, I erase it and say, no, don't have to do that. Don't have to do this. Everything is already good. Everything is survived. Everything is fine. Well, I, I'm glad I, I met you rather than a therapist because uh, your method's a lot easier. <laughs> a lot less complicated. <laughs> It is. It's a very, very simple method. The teaching of the Buddha is very simple. I've had uh, really excellent conversations with uh, Western senior monks, especially uh, uh, my friend Dhamma Vitu, who's been a monk now for about 30 years. And we all always go, at least half of our conversation is about how small the Dhamma really is. The teachings of the Buddha is so small that it's only a handful of leaves. It's only just, now for many students, that's quite a handful in the beginning. Mm -hmm. But once you understand it, it's a very easy thing to do. Anapanasati, take a deep breath, relax, and enjoy your life. It's a beautiful thing. I hear you've got calls happening. Yes. I'll uh, let somebody this, else... This benefit yeah. from uh <laughs> this. yeah this is clint calling in before it was dan okay so, i uh, i sent a couple of people your way you may have a couple more people calling you if you got time but all right well <laughs> i think that we've gotten kind of back together in the sense of uh, knowing that the in real way of looking at it is let's start nurturing ourselves and stop being so critical and every time that we remember to be nurturing, let's be nurturing. Great talk. Society. Yeah. Thanks, Tomorado. Thank you. Okay. Well, we'll see you again, I hope. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, we got it worked out. I'm going to try to make it a regular thing now to plan it out. Great. Yeah.
All right. Thanks, Tomorado. Okay. Well, we'll see you. We'll see you. Bye-bye.